Thank you so much for joining us with the most precious thing you have, your time. So we try to do what we always do, turn down the noise in the news cycle, talk about some important topics that might get drowned out by all those headlines, get to the information we need, and better discern the times we live in. Uh, I shouldn't have done it, but I did it. I watched this GOP debate. This is the third. There's going to be a fourth sometime in December. Um, I... I, I'm so done with this. I actually watched this with my youngest uh, daughter. She's 16. She does not care about politics. Even though I write and do media and other things, I don't talk about politics at home at all, almost ever, for any reason, unless somebody in my household prompts me to do so. Um, I don't talk about politics because I do this during the day. I don't want to do it at night. But my daughter just doesn't care about politics, although she's very opinionated and very informed and reads a lot and knows plenty. We just don't talk about it a lot. So this isn't me, her repeating things that I say, but she had some interesting takes on things. And mostly she just scurred all these people um, and was not impressed with any of them. Uh, there was a lot of comments like, why do they talk like that? Uh, there was a lot of eye rolling. There's a lot of, well, that doesn't make any sense. Um, those sorts of comments from somebody detached from it, who doesn't have a fandom involved, who doesn't have a real policy involvement here. They, she just thought the whole thing was kind of silly. There was five people on the stage. I'll just go through them for lack of a better way to do it. Um, Senator Tim Scott was there by speaking time. He spoke the most at everybody. Uh, I know Tim Scott's well-liked within the party proper. I know he's very well-liked within the Senate. You can tell he's been a U.S. senator and not actually ran anything because he talks that way. He talks in generalities. He talks in a way where he's never had to convince people to follow him or to lead people or to persuade folks. He talks has a strange cadence to his talking. I was actually texting somebody online. I was like, I think he forgets to breathe when he talks because he talks and he does that kind of where his voice goes up a little bit and then he has to stop because he just runs out of air and he goes, it's just kind of a, a strange thing. After the debate, Dana Bash on CNN was interviewing him um, and he was just absolutely floundering uh, with some answers, especially one about Iran where he's like, well, we're going to strike Iran and she kept pushing like, you're going to attack Iran. Well, no, I'm going to strike her. There's stuff like that, just floundering on it. Um, I think this is the last time we'll see him on the debate. His candidacy is going nowhere. He barely qualified for this one. He's not comfortable in this format. And again, you can tell he's a U.S. senator for multiple years. He's not been in an executive position. What We're going to criticize the other people, but people like Haley and DeSantis, you know, even uh, Vivek rhymes with fake, rhymes with cake. You can tell they've at least been in charge of stuff and worked with people, and they've, they've got that executive voice where they talk in a certain way, and Tim Scott just doesn't have it. Chris Christie does have it, um, but again, he his whole thing is attacked Trump harshly, but he has the same problem that Nikki Haley's going to have and Ron DeSantis has, and his is even worse because we've got the hostage video where he endorsed Trump in 2016. You know, he ate the meatloaf, as we notoriously have covered. Uh, after Donald Trump won. He was for Trump before he was against it. You know, Chris Christie isn't going to win this race either. Very interesting comment from my teenager. Um, he was giving answers. He was being Chris Christie. He actually wasn't going over the top on attacking Trump like he has some. He skipped the can lines, and she made the comment. She's like, he actually sounds like an adult. He sounds like a functional person. He's kind of been the best one of this bunch. Until he got to the TikTok answer. And this is fascinating. This is the generation gap. And when the TikTok answer happened, she just rolled it out. I was like, well, he was doing great till that. Now he sounds like an idiot. <laughs> There's a generation gap there. 
actually had a conversation with my daughter about TikTok. We don't fully agree on it because we have different perspectives. I think of it as a, you know, OPSEC and national security thing. She doesn't. She just likes the dance videos. And like she says, well, and we had this conversation and they touched on it a little bit in the bait, but this is just parenting, just talking to her like, no, I don't think we can't ban TikTok from everybody. We should ban it from government computers and military computers and things like that. But you're not going to be able to ban it from the populace, despite what people are saying. Yes, you could probably do some kind of regulatory thing where you, quote unquote, make them sell it. But anything that's that company is going to be controlled by the communist Chinese government. There's nothing you're going to be able to do about it. And then she makes a comment. Well, they, they're selling their data and data farming. Doesn't Google and everybody else do that? Yes, they do. And here's the difference, because when you have a world power who is bent on world domination doing it, that's a little different than just Google selling it for money, although there's, you know, degrees to that. And we had the conversation about that and it was good and it was fun, not fun because of the topic, but fun to talk through it, which was more than the debate stage managed to do because they're demagoguing it and just going, well, we're going to ban it or we're not going to ban it. Nikki Haley got caught up in that TikTok thing because um, Vivek Ramazway really just is a loathsome person, attacked her daughter. Her daughter, by the way, for folks that don't know the full story, the daughter he's talking about is 25 years old. She's actually a nurse. She's a professional person. You know, it was a stupid low blow. It's what he does, though. I put on social media, you cannot treat uh, Vivek like a regular candidate because he's not. He is wholly a subsidiary of Donald Trump. Any poll number he got, Donald Trump's going to get that. We have the reporting. He is, when he meets with donors, he's not just pitching his campaign. He's pitching his business ideas and his done I put it on my Twitter. You can go look for, for the fire at Twitter. This, the canned line about his daughter and TikTok. Now, all these people did it. Nikki Haley did this. Ron DeSantis did this. When they say they're canned and prepared lines, their social media team immediately puts it out on social media. Well, when he did the line about the daughter and TikTok, some of the usual suspects, Benny Johnson, the twice-fired plagiarist that works for TPUSA, and Matt Walsh, who works for Daily Wire, both immediately, as soon as it came out, boosted that out. That's all pre-planned stuff. That's called back channels, folks. You can look at Vivek, what he's doing. He's building himself a media profile with more of the fringy stuff on the right. He likes. He was on Infowars a couple weeks ago with Alex Jones. He's building himself a brand, trying to get in with those kind of social media and new media and online entities, and that's why he acts the way he does on stage. So I'm going to use the proper nomenclature for him. He's not a political candidate. He's a jackass. So from now on on my social media, I will refer to him as that jackass Vivek Ramswery, because that's all he's doing here. He's being the online right. And a lot of them that support Trump, because notice he'll never say anything bad about Trump for any reason because he's expecting to get the support of Trump when this whole thing ends. He is wanting to tap into that thing that some phrases of the Trump supporters do where, oh, we get to say and do whatever we want now because Trump gets away with it. And the online folks that do it because it gets clicks and engagements and they can just be ugly and mean and stupid to people. That's just being a jackass. That's not being any kind of policy, anything. And I'm sick of this guy, frankly. And I'm sick of this guy, frankly. They shouldn't let him on the debate stage. A proper party would not let him participate. Skip me with all the free speech stuff. He doesn't have a right to be on this stage. He reverses himself on everything. He lies constantly. I'm done with this guy. Nikki Haley, people thought, had a pretty good night. Um, the he, their heels, their ammunition. She put that out on social media as one of her, you know, retorts. Obviously, that was planned a little bit. She had that one ready. I don't know that it doesn't even make sense. It's silly. Nikki Haley's got the same problem that some of these others do. She was in the Trump administration. She was the UN ambassador. She said it herself last night. Trump was the correct choice in 2016, but he's not now. That's that's incongruent. That doesn't make sense to normal people. It doesn't make sense to the Trump supporters, which you're going to need to get some of them if you're going to get elected. And it doesn't make sense to the non-Trump supporters who are against him. So she's just stuck in this no man's land. She had a really good answer on abortion that actually covered some ground. Even the mainstream media folks admitted people like David Axelrod was like, well, this was a really good answer on this. But then she gets into these back and forth with Ron DeSantis and Tim Scott. And every time that happens, 
her and Ron DeSantis and Tim Scott look smaller and smaller because of the way they bicker over some little thing like who sold more land to China or some silly something that nobody cares about. Oh, I know people care about it, but not really. People aren't going to be thinking about that when they go into the voting booth. They're worried about the economy and things like that. It just makes them all look small, especially with Trump not on the stage. Ron DeSantis did what he always did. He didn't make any mistakes, but he played it safe. He half-heartedly attacks Donald Trump, but for somebody that's losing to Donald Trump by 30 and 40 points in some places, you think he'd actually go after him, but he can't because he wants the Donald Trump voters. And he has never figured out since the time he declared until today, and I doubt he figures it out before Iowa, how to attack Trump because he's scared to death of losing those voters, and he just won't do it. We covered with Gary and Frankel on uh, the last program. You can go back and listen to it, the silliness of the boot comment. It was interesting. Teenager was giggling about that. It's like, well, that's stupid. doesn't matter, but I don't know that I like that he does it. All right, fair enough. And she's a fashion person, so she's like, well, clearly he's wearing lifts because look at how he's walking. I don't care about those kind of stories, but it nitpicks into somebody who's trying so hard to straddle the fence on things. Now you open yourself up to things like that, plus the arrogance that he thought he'd get away with it. His answers were all fine. He answers the way most Republicans in his position would answer. He's had great success in Florida. This was another conversation I had to have with the team. They're like, well, what? I was like, look, he won Florida by 20 points. That's nothing to sneeze at. That's an accomplishment. He did that. But this isn't scaling up to the national level because, again, you have the Donald Trump factor. All five of these people have a Donald Trump problem, and Donald Trump's not on the stage. And the part of it that I don't know that people have reckoned with is Trump's been right to skip these things. He's higher in the polls and has distanced himself from all these folks more and more as these have gone on. These folks have looked smaller and smaller in the absence of Donald Trump. And Donald Trump is saying some bat crazy stuff, even by Donald Trump's standards. He mixed up North Korea and China just yesterday in a really bonkers statement. He's terrible on the mic. He says ridiculous things. But here's the thing that I'm going to keep repeating because people still haven't figured it out yet. When you're running against Donald Trump in a GOP primary, GOP primary voters, this is important, not general electorate, not independents that can be swayed, not those voters that went, you know, Trump to Biden, and you're trying to get them to come back to the Republican Party. We're not talking about those folks. We're not talking about Democrats and the Blue Dogs and the Rust Belts that ran to Trump against Hillary Clinton. We're not talking about those folks. We're talking about a Republican primary, the hardcore base of the Republican primary. I've seen no evidence that they want an alternative to Trump. And the quote-unquote alternatives to Trump won't even attack Trump in a meaningful way because they're scared to death of ticking off those same people that they need. I was talking to our friend Dr. Michael Siegel the other day, and he, he was asking about the number. I was like, look, Donald Trump only needs 30% to win these early primaries. And if he wins the first three of the first four, even two of the first four, he's probably going to sweep all four of the first four. If he gets 25-30% in each of these, he's going to win them. And then this thing's over. Forget Super Tuesday. It's not going to matter. It's already going to be over, which is also right about the time these trials are going to really be kicking up. Donald Trump is not a political party. He's not a traditional politician. He's not an ideology. He's not a policy. He's not a foreign policy thing, Nikki Haley. He's not a governor executive function policy, Ron DeSantis. You're dealing with something with Donald Trump that none of these people have an answer for. You're dealing with feelings. You're dealing with a cult of personality. You're dealing with radical fans of Donald Trump. You're not going to policy them off that. Donald Trump made them feel something. Donald Trump made them feel something. I'm repeating it twice because they don't understand this. Ron DeSantis doesn't seem to make people feel things. Nikki Haley doesn't make people feel things. They felt that with Donald Trump. And some of the coverage last night, I'm going to give um, some credit here where it's due. A couple different people brought this up. Those people that felt something about Donald Trump, they aren't in the regular world. They're in their bubble. And they really think, and you're not going to convince them otherwise, that 2024 is the year Donald Trump comes back and they are vindicated and everything they said all along was right, and they won't ever have to admit that they were wrong. You don't have a policy for that. You don't have a one-liner for that. You don't have something cute to say during a debate that you can put on your social media that's going to do that. And Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley are not, and Tim Scott and Vivek Ramazway and whoever else, Chris Christie, 
they're not going to ever convince any of those people arguing amongst themselves on the JV team. Donald Trump's lapping the field of these folks. And when you watch this debate, it was readily apparent why. More hard tell right after this. Well, uh, welcome back to Herdell. We are with our good friend Sarah Montalbano, who is back again to talk more environmental stuff from up in Alaska because that's right in her job title. She's a Northwest Regional Leader for Young Voices, but she's also the policy manager at the Alaska Policy Forum, as well as being a visitor for the IWF. And I think you sing and dance and do some musicals and you probably craft in your spare time and you travel. Is there anything you don't do, Sarah, at this point? Sports. Sports. <laughs> I do not play you, sports. Where did you time. move to the wrong state in Florida? With if you're not going to be a sports fan, huh? Yes, I've actually gone to a few baseball games, and those are pretty interesting. Actually, yeah, I, I like so. baseball in person, especially minor league. I, I like to go to college level games; those are fun. Um, but we got to talk nuclear reactors with you. But these aren't the nuclear reactors people think about. Let's start here because I don't have to take anybody's word for this. I don't have to listen to the rhetoric on this. I've got a real life example right now in Germany, a country I know well. I've lived there twice for many years. I've seen what's happened with their nuclear program. They shut it down and it's been an utter disaster. If we had just ignored the hippies in the 60s and 70s and built nuclear, we wouldn't have the power problems we have now. We didn't have a technology answer other than the really expensive front-end, massive three-cooling tower, three-mile island kind of facilities. Now we got some options, though. Yes, yes. What's really exciting in nuclear technology right now is that we are starting to develop nuclear micro-reactors, and those um, under, you know, most definitions are under 50 megawatts. And for contrast, um, these other reactors that we typically think of are, you know, about a thousand megawatts or more. Uh, so we're talking a really small scale, but even, a, you know, one megawatt can power a thousand households. Uh, so we're really talking about, you know, 25,000, 50,000 households being powered by these kind of reactors that can be shipped in on a semi-truck. These are not large. They can be installed really quickly. And that makes them really versatile for the kind of problems my state faces here in Alaska. And they're versatile, Sarah, not just because of the size of them, but the other problem is when you're talking about Alaska, look, the first of these going on lines at Elson Air Force Base, I've been there. It is the literal middle of nowhere. I'm not exaggerating and or <laughs> kidding about this. You just look down and it's like nothing, nothing, nothing. Oh, air base. Where'd that come from? Mm -hmm. There, Part of the nuclear thing is it requires quite a bit of logistics and setup. These do not. These are pretty self-sufficient things for a number of years. Think more along the lines of instead of a nuclear power plant, think a nuclear submarine where it just goes out and does whatever it needs to do. And it's pretty low maintenance for several years at a time. That's what we're talking about. So a remote area like in Alaska, like Appalachia, like the Western American desert, where you're going to have some logistical issues. You don't have the natural resources. This, if properly applied, seems like it could be a solution. I absolutely agree with that. Alaska um, is a very good test case for this kind of thing. Uh, the reactor at Eielson is looking to be online by 2027, I believe, and that is going to be really exciting. But there's also commercial applications. A lot of Alaska's rural communities are only really accessible by small bush plane, um, sometimes by road, but not always. Um, and they need to bring in heating oil every winter to survive really frigid temperatures. And that can be anywhere from $5 a gallon up to $12 a gallon. Uh, so it really dampens economic opportunity to have to, you know, barge all of these in before the winter hits and then, you know, try and store all this heating oil and then having to purchase it and all of your, you know, energy costs seep into everything else. Your groceries are, you have to bring in by plane too. Uh, so I really see nuclear microreactors as one of Alaska's future solutions. And it works, it will work in, in rural communities everywhere, but I think this is going to be a really fascinating test case. Yeah, so 
Folks think, Sarah Montalbano joining us again, folks think nuclear, they think dangerous. They think nuclear explosion. They see Hiroshima. They think of, you know, what happened in Japan a few years ago. Pick whatever you want to, the Chernobyl thing, although Chernobyl wasn't a nuclear accident. It was a bureaucratic accident, but we'll rehash that some (laughs) other times. Um, Fukushima was actually a success story on how they contained it, but that's not how people see things like that. You actually got the data, though. There's no version of energy that doesn't have a human cost to it, either in the actual people that have to dig and or resource it out of the ground, whatever that resource is, and or pollution. You've got the hard numbers here on deaths per whatever energy source you want to go. And it's pretty shocking when you look at that number one compared to the nuclear compared to like coal or oil, isn't it? Yeah, this was really fascinating to research. Um, Every energy source has its trade-offs, but nuclear is by far one of the safest power sources we have available. Um, You know, Fukushima actually led to zero radiation-related deaths. Um, Chernobyl, all of these things loom really large in the public imagination, but it's not true. Um, You know, accidents and air pollution, uh, so when when you consider air pollution, um, is only 0.03 deaths per unit of nuclear electricity production. Uh, So think about that. Um, But oil is 18.4. So that is a huge difference in the kind of um, magnitude of of deaths, either in in the kind of uh, sourcing of the materials or in, you know, secondary effects down the line. Sarah Montalbano joining us. We're talking about a piece she wrote in C3. We're going to link to the whole thing. And as she always does, there's a ton of links in there. Make sure you read it. One of those links, though, goes to the transportation part of this. You already mentioned it. Again, rural areas. How do we change the perception? Because, again, people are thinking those giant cooling tires. They're thinking, you know, nuclear plumes of mushroom clouds. We're talking about basically an oversized shipping container on a flatbed truck. That's what we're dealing with here. If people see this and they see that, like in Alaska, you don't need all the communities linked to the electrical grid. You need self-sufficient electrical grids because these are more remote communities. That's a perception shift that people are just going to have to see. Is that how you change the conversation on nuclear of like, look, this is a truck with a container on it. That's a lot less scary than a giant cooling tower, right? I agree. I think a lot of it it comes down to these very public and scary disasters that we've seen. Uh, But those are rather few and far between, and they are not the kind of thing that would be happening in a nuclear microreactor situation. I also think what prompted me to write this article is that Alaska adopted uh, regulations to try and make it easier to pick sites for nuclear microreactors. So you used to have to say that the state legislature and the local borough or muni- municipality had to approve of siting, but actually now all you have to do is um, get the the municipality or borough to agree on it if you're in an incorporated area or the state legislature. So the state has taken control of what it can about this, but really the Nuclear Regulatory Commission controls all aspects of safety, and they are really, really tight on their regulations. They are not going to let anything slip through that could possibly be harmful. Uh, And that makes it really difficult to develop nuclear. I think we need to see first this pilot program at Eielson Air Force, uh, and then we're going to start seeing some commercial applications once the military has shown its it's feasible for them. Yeah, Sarah Montalbano joining us. A fair criticism of nuclear is it is very expensive on the front end, the R&D, the development. It takes time to get the money back out of it. Over time, it is much cheaper, much cleaner energy, but it takes a little while for that ratio to catch up to itself. That's a fair criticism of nuclear. Where do we do the money here? You just mentioned it. There's never going to be a version of nuclear power that doesn't have federal oversight, nor should there be, frankly, because there is danger involved here. How do we get that balance right, though? Because this is clearly going to have to be more than just government. I know it's an abused word that it's got corruption involved, but this is something that just screams for public-private um, cooperation and relationships. How do we make those healthy things, properly regulated things? Because that's what this is really going to need to go forward, right? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting thing. I think a lot of our federal energy policy has been driving 
oodles of dollars into wind and solar, which are frankly not going to be feasible on the same scales, and they're not going to be as actually zero emission as nuclear technologies are. Um, you know, they cost a lot in their minerals uh, to mine and, you know, create batteries and um, they don't work all the time. Um, you know, you, you have to have batteries to store this energy and there's just frankly not enough of it. Uh, so I think if federal investment recognized that nuclear energy is going to be um, more feasible with these upfront investments, I think that would make a huge difference. Sarah Montalbano joining us. Let's do some numbers here real quick because these are small-scale reactors. So you're saying, oh, it's only a 50-megawatt plant. What could that do? Well, 50 megawatts is roughly about 9,000 homes, give or take, depending on how you want to do it. But you can also multiply out because they don't run at max power all the time. It varies. So you have, you know, kilowatts. There's a lot. Look, energy is a hard thing to explain. It, mm -hmm. it goes up and down the grids. One thing we know, though, we're not making enough electricity right now as it is in America. That's not debatable. We've seen rolling blackouts and problems in places like Texas. You know, energy rich as it is, Texas should never have an energy shortage. But we've seen that. We're not making enough power. We're pushing for this green electric future that's going to require two, three, four times the amount of power we can't make right now. There's just nothing else feasible, ready to go, ready to build that makes the amount of power we're going to need as quick as nuclear does. That's just a fact, is it not? I would absolutely say so. And I would also add that in these blackout situations that we've had, adding wind and solar to the grid hasn't actually been helpful because you think about, you know, in a car, when you're braking, you're, you're in stop and go traffic, you're using more fuel in order to get back up to the speeds that you were. And when you are saying, like, we're going to have wind and solar, you know, powering things when it can, and then we need to kick on the natural gas generation once we have this peak demand in the evenings when everyone gets home and they're charging their electric cars and running their, you know, lights and ovens and all their dishes, you know, all of this stuff. Um, you know, that is less efficient than just running it all the time. And what we see with nuclear is it can run a lot more of the time and for much, much longer. Some of these nuclear microreactors are not going to need refueling for a decade. Um, and that's, that's really fantastic to see. Alaskan communities, about 80%, have a population less than 1,500 people. Um, so these, these absolutely have the capacity to power entire villages, um, and they can do it while being disconnected from any other electric grid and uh, with a lot of power left over to spare. Yeah, Sarah Montabano, there's also a political angle to this, and you just mentioned it, and I want to bring it up. The electric corporations and the conglomerates that control electricity, they are a problem. Now, I'm not saying the business is bad. I'm still a capitalist, but capitalism needs guardrails and oversights and regulations. We have not properly regulated and oversighted the electrical uh, grid in many, many years, decades, I could argue since the 70s. Part of the problem is the electrical companies and how they, now it's not all their fault because some of it's the government. This is a problem. If you have these kind of reactors where you have a mid-sized city of, you know, up to 40, 50, 60,000 people, and they have one of these reactors where they have their self-sufficient power municipally controlled or in some kind of a partnership, that changes the politics and the economics of the electrical grid on top of just providing power. That could be revolutionary on a couple different ways, could it not? I agree. I see microreactors as an opportunity for independence. I'm not saying, you know, you're going to go out and build a cabin in the woods somewhere and get your own nuclear microreactor. I'm not saying that. But I do think there's a lot of opportunities here to uh, actually make grids more resilient. Um, I'm still learning all the time about um, the network of electrical grids in the contiguous United States, because that's really not so much of a problem up here in Alaska. We kind of have to be disconnected uh, just by geography. Um, so that is, I think, really it's a fascinating point you bring up. Um, it's, it's definitely nuclear needs to be brought into their electrical plans. Uh, I think a lot of ratepayers are not being uh, told honestly about how utilities want to 
generate the power in the future because they're coming out in thousand page documents that no one has time to read, right? So I think that transparency will make a huge difference, especially if communities do want to adopt some of these nuclear microreactors in other states. Yeah, Sarah Montalbano, you've done a lot of energy policy over the years because Alaska is such an oil and gas producer on top of everything else in a lot of other ways. Look, we need to break it down that America is a big, diverse country. We say that, but we don't really believe it when it comes to policy because, look, my hometown has a hydroelectric plant, but that's because it has a Corps of Engineer controlled lake and they drain the lake every winter for rafting season. And they're like, oh, this is a perfect place to put a power plant. We can help <laughs> some folks out. It ain't perfect. The city's has had to sue over the rates a time or two, but you can do that in central West Virginia because it's Corps of Engineer lands. It's regulatory wise, pretty easy to do because of the way it's set up. They got rivers, they got lakes, they got flood control. The American West, hydroelectric power is a problem because they're running out of water. I've been to the Hoover Dam. I've seen how that looks. You can put wind on the high plains up in, you know, the Dakotas and the Black Hills. You can put them on the plains. Wind power works really well. That's not going to work super well in some other areas like the Pacific Northwest. It just doesn't. I think we need an all of the above energy policy. I think nuclear is not going to work for everybody, but it will work for a lot of folks. I think wind will work in some places. I think hydroelectricity works in some places. Why is that so hard to just say it that way? Why do we have to have all this cracking of heads over and just go, no, 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 one size fits all. We got to do this. Why can't I just say that and everybody go, oh, okay, that makes sense. I know money's involved, but why else? I I think people see a big problem and they assume that govern, government needs to be the big solution and they need to ban whatever's not safe and what's not going to be the optimal solution. And I, I agree with you, what works in Alaska may not work in West Virginia uh, and they need to have freedom in order to pursue these different options. I think microreactors are going to be a really positive development for my state. Uh, perhaps it won't be adopted in other places. That is you know, the beauty of pluralism and federalism here. Um, I think there's a lot of different interests in energy policy. I think there's a lot of companies that are relying on subsidies and persuading the federal government that their solution is going to be the best across the board. Um, and they are fooling themselves just as much as, you know, anyone else. Uh, you know, we need to have all sorts of energy and we need more of it. Yeah, Sarah Montalbano, I've been encouraged reading this stuff because I think obviously there's an environmental component to the new energy stuff, but I think it drowns out what's really happening some. There's amazing advancements in batteries, and I don't mean D-cell batteries in your flashlight, and I don't mean the batteries in Teslas. They're making these industrial batteries now that are basically giant shipping containers, and you can set them next to a factory and run a factory for a week off them, this kind of stuff. It's really amazing technology. I'm encouraged by some of the micro-reactor nuclear technology stuff. I get that the environmental discussion is hot and heavy and gets clicks. I also think in some cases, though, when it comes to actual energy production, and there's no version of a cleaner environment that doesn't require a massive amount of electrical production. Let's just That's just fact. You want a green future, you're going to need a lot of electricity to get there. I think that conversation, while it overlaps, I think it's drowning out the energy policy. Is that a fair way to lay it out? I would say so. I It's such a complicated discussion, and I think we just need to take a step back and think realistically about human flourishing with energy policy, because this is about making sure people live better lives. It's making sure, you know, rural Alaskans have access to cheap, reliable energy. Uh, this isn't all about let's, you know, try and reduce emissions as much as we physically can, because that will impoverish people. That will not be easy to do without cutting back on the amount of energy we need to live um, and, and live a good quality of life. Uh, so that that is what motivates me towards energy and environment policy is thinking about you know, how do we get to these optimal mixes for all of these different communities? And how does it actually support people? Yeah, Sarah Montalbano. Okay, friends hold friends accountable. So I got to ask you this, uh, sure. because I do follow you on the Twitter. And yes. you tweeted on September 21st, set some goals for the quarter four here. And didn't realize <laughs> it's only two weeks away and not nine months. What happened to 2023? Well, we're now into the new fiscal year. 
why do you not have your life together and why can you not manage your time? Because I don't do that either. And I could use some advice on it. <laughs> I I have such a struggle. This year has just gone by in a flash. It feels like, um, you know, I have my, my goal I will share with you is to be more comfortable posting on social media <laughs> and self promotion. So anyway, you can help me with that. Let me know. <laughs> I would challenge you to find anybody that's promoted you more than I have personally and or True. Young <laughs> but I'm a big fan. It's fine. You picked a bad time because Twitter's dying a slow and painful death to whatever it's going to be. But Sarah Montabano, you need to follow her. She does good work. Let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you. We're going to link to the C3 piece. Again, lots of links in there. Make sure you read the links themselves because they got a lot of the numbers and the data sets we were just talking about, especially that health and death per number. That was amazing. Sarah, let folks know where to find you until we get you back on again. Thank you. I would be findable on Twitter uh, at Sarah Montalbano, and the O is a zero. You can also find me on alaskapolicyforum.org um, dot com. No, org. Org. Alaskapolicyforum.org. Um, and you can also find me on Young Voices. Yep. See there, you just self-promoted just fine. Didn't have a bit of problems with it. Not that. too bad. You'll do fine. I'm getting better. Sarah Montabano, our very good friend, love talking environment and conservation and energy and things like that with her. Look forward to seeing you again soon, my friend. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. All right. Ah, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, new face of the program. Love doing this. Love having new folks come in. Another one of our great Young Voices contributors. She has a diverse background and range of interests, everything from environmental stuff to mental health, which we were talking about before we brought her on. We're going to have her back for that one. Shakira Jackson, so glad you're joining us. Thank you, ma'am, for the time today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be representing the Young Voice, and uh, yeah, let's hop into it. <laughs> yeah, I love it. All right. We got to get into some things here, but I want to ask you big picture something because some of your media and some of your writing, we're going to link to the pieces we talk about, by the way, in the show notes. Make sure you hit those up on the sub stack. I'm fascinated. <laughs> we just we just tease the mental health stuff. I, I think we need a therapist for some of our political friends right now. There really is this rift going on. And I don't know if rift's the right way to talk about it. I think some of this is growing pains. I think there's kind of a generational evolutionary moment happening where things are just changing fast and people aren't adapting. How would you explain what's going on, especially in the right, especially among quote-unquote conservatives? And I hate to use that term because nobody knows what it means anymore when everybody from Alex Jones to Mitt Romney is a conservative. Who knows what that means anymore? 
but how would you phrase it? Is this a in-between time of tectonic plates rubbing each other, and that's why it seems like it's dissension? Is it people that really hate each other? How do you explain it, do you think? I mean, there's no there's no second guess that things are changing fast. I feel like with the enhancement of fake news, that's even more traumatizing to, you know, mental health and how our young people are digesting the plethora of information that's being put on the media. I, I think it's exactly though what you said. It's it's more so that that train effect per se. Um, and it's coming at us fast. I think it's gonna take uh, really just people like myself, people like you taking the initiative to stand up for, um, you know, really emphasizing the importance behind real factual information, how to find factual information. And uh, of course, emphasizing the importance behind having your news outlets that are pouring into you in a research aspect, more so less trying to put their ideologies onto you. Um, So that's what I would say about that. See, I think you hit on something here that we don't talk about enough. I've tried to bring it up a few times. I still honestly don't know how to get my head all the way around explaining this to other people. It's just something I kind of inherently feel from doing this stuff. The part we don't talk about is our news intake is completely curated by us. Mm-hmm. Like we're self-filtering every bit of information we get now. Now you can be lazy about it and not filter that much, but you are 100% responsible for what pops up on your cell phone. Like, we just don't talk about it in terms like that, but that's exactly what's happening. So we talk about the ingest of it. When you have people who can curate everything they're intaking, I don't think there's a lot of persuasion being done. I don't think there's a lot of changing people's minds because they can go find whatever stat they want to prove otherwise or an alternate fact or fake news or whatever terminology you want. I don't know that we've dealt with that portion of it as like, hey, it's not that people believe the fake stuff. It's that they can find all the fake stuff they want. So unless they want to find out something different, they don't have to anymore. Right. They have to take that approach. They, it's more so the responsibility on the person. But since we've we've come a long way with the advancement of technology and, you know, it seems like every other day there's a new app going viral and, you know, a new trend going viral. So you have all of these distractions and it's like, where is the accountability? But I think that relates back to um, my my previous article that I wrote and um, published not that long ago about like getting back to the American freedom roots and principles, right? Being able to take that initiative and say, well, hey, I know that I may not have been doing this, um, you know, right now, but I'm willing to acknowledge it. I want to acknowledge that I haven't been taking that extra post to do my research and um, really figure out what's going on. Taking that accountability, it's, it's easier said than done. However, you know, when we have our mentors and the people in our lives that are really trying to make sure we have that factual information, I think that goes a long way, but it just comes with time and recognition. And it's only so much you can do. What's the saying, you know, leading a a, a horse to water and all that type of the the old sayings and the myths, but it's true. You know, you, you, it's only so much and we take responsibility when we sign up to download these apps and, you know, news outlets on our phones. So we just have to be cautious about those types of things. Yeah, Shikara Jackson joining us in that piece. It's a Deseret. We're going to link to it at hertel.substack.com. Make sure you read the whole piece yourself. You use some imagery that I think is kind of important here because it goes to what you were just talking about there. You talked about how traditionally before, you know, the current era, whether you want to call it, you know, the Trump era, the MAG era or whatever, the current situation we find ourselves in where the right and conservatism really took a turn and changed and became more divisive inside of itself. You talked about how the old traditional version of that, let's just call it the Reagan era, for lack of a better term, kind of condensed it down the last 40 years previous or whatever, my lifetime, for example. You talked about how that was actually a lot of different things that were kind of woven together. And one of the things that is really uh, sticks out about some of the newer stuff that's more dangerous, in my opinion, the stuff that's more divisive, the stuff that gets into wackadooism, frankly, they're trying almost without exception to simplify everything. Oh, well, it's all this one problem. Oh, it's all this one group. Oh, it's all this one person. It's always a simplification. But you very purposely in your piece talked about how traditionally an ideology, whether that's progressive, conservative, whatever, that's usually woven ideas together. I think it's a warning sign when you get people that try to oversimplify things. Is that how you feel, too? I agree. I mean, but I'm also on on 
on a little bit of the middle string, just a little bit in the sense of being able to, you know, you're knowing your audiences, you're knowing the the time, uh, the focus time for our young people. They're not spending no more than like, I don't know what it's like, 15 seconds or something on a video. Or, you know, if you're putting content out there, you can't really get their attention. So I do believe in adapting, you know, to your audience. However, I mean, in the document, you know, the the, the Freedom Conservatism document, it's it states, you know, over, over 80 respected writers and thinkers from the center right, you know, have backed this statement and, you know, they're offering a com com comprehensive vision that can kind of um, evaluate our movement above the current discourse. So, you know, it's a it's a declaration of what we stand for, constitutionalism, personal responsibility, you know, free market capitalism. And I think by like rallying around these unifying principles, we can really articulate a vision that really resonates with a broader audience. So this isn't about, you know, a single policy or election cycle. It's about kind of crafting a sustainable principled future for, you know, conservative thought in, in America. Yeah, you just mentioned it. We're stuck in the cycle stuff. Oh, well, I'm on, I think, my ninth or tenth most important election in the history of mankind. May I may be in double digits now because I'm getting a little older. I'm in my 40s now. You know, that kind of thing like, oh, well, this next election or this next leader or this next thing. The problem with that is you lose your principles because there's always some immediacy of the moment. You talked about it in your piece as well. It's like, look, we have we call them principles for a reason, right? And you talked about them not just as these things that are chiseled in stone. You talked about hope. You've got to talk about them as things that are hopeful. They've got to be aspirational. They got to be things that give people more than just that buzzword fix for the cycle of the moment, whether that's a news cycle or an election cycle. Why do you see hope and principles being so linked and so important for the benefit of both of those things? So, you know, as a history and political science scholar, you know, I'm deeply invested in kind of ensuring that our political discourse involves robust conservative voices. And I feel like, you know, this statement is more than, like I said, a document. It's a roadmap for that healing and the strengthening of our movement. And the only way we're going to get there, you know, I, I people always say, too, that like the reason Obama became president, you know, is because he sold hope. And he did. He did. He sold hope. Um, and hope goes a long way. And I think that this this document specifically, it like I said, it shines as a beacon of hope because it gives it gives it sets the tone. It gives those examples of how, you know, disagreements within the movement, especially on key issues like limited government and, uh, you know, the responsibility aspect, you know, highlight the need for this document. And it's not just about having, you know, a shared identity. It's about being able to act effectively on our convictions. And that's exactly what I think is going to take us to the finish line with being able to create this unifying America. It gets down to the very old adage. We use it a lot as a foundational principle in our programs. Like, look, people end up eventually they're going to judge the actions and not the words. A lot of the problems with some of these words in here is uh, let, let's take the buzzwords. I, I hate buzzwords. They drive me nuts. But that's the world we live in. Right. Everything's a buzzword. Yep. Well, if your actions don't match your buzzwords, people are going to see that for exactly what it is. A lot of these principles that you talk about, both in the document and in your writing, and that we're just talking about here, you know, just freedom, like something really basic. We want to have the most freedom for the most people possible. That's a pretty basic, unobjectionable statement to probably 90% of Americans. How we get there, there's a lot of ways. But those are just words. If you don't have actions that match those, people turn your messaging off. I think conservatism, and especially the right in the last few years, that's where they lost people is like, OK, you're saying you're for principles, you're saying you're for freedom, you're saying you're for smaller government or more accountable government. But then your actions tell us X, Y and Z and we don't believe you. Yes. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg here? Do you have the principles and then it fixes the actions or do you change your actions to get back to your principle? Because that's kind of a Gordian knot. But that's the issue at hand, is it not? 
I agree. And you know what? I think a big example of this right now is people choosing what is free speech. You know, everybody's all, you know, oh, yeah, you know, free speech is, you know, when you're, you're able to express yourself. But depending on what side you're on, then we kind of want to synthesize and be like, oh, well, that's not that's not free speech. But in reality, if we're going to say free speech is free speech, all free all speech is free speech, um, in my opinion. And we find ourselves kind of in this inner loop. So I think the principles aspect always comes first. And, you know, you have to know your principles in order to know where you're going. And that's kind of why people, they pickle me all the time because I have my, my bachelor's in history, but I figured, hey, if I don't know where I come from, how can I know where I'm going? So, you know, that's kind of where I, I stand on that. Yeah, I'm a history person too. Shakira Jackson joining us. I like to go to history and look ahead, but there is parts of what's going on that we're a little bit off the map on. You know, obviously social media has changed things drastically. Um, we've never had an 80 year old president and an almost 80 year old former president running against each other for, you know, we've just never done this. Yes. There's this stuff that we're off the map on. You just mentioned it and I say it all the time, but I don't think I stop and explain it. So you stop and explain it because you got the degree in it and I don't. How do we apply history? Because it's not just looking backwards all the times. It's just kind of using it as a filter. So you're like, okay, I vaguely recognize this and I can navigate it a little bit better. What's the healthy way to use history? Because obviously the Constitution didn't know anything about iPhones, but there's a couple of principles in there you can grab that would apply to an iPhone. Give us a couple of those things from that history background, if you would. Yeah, sure thing. I mean, I think my biggest grasp from history, when I think about it more on the, liber the liberty aspect of it, was the, the value behind movements, the value behind finding your voice. And I love history, too, because you can always pull from somebody's story. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a heavy, I'm a book nerd. I love, love, love reading um, the, the Reagan diaries. Um, you know, Reagan, he, he was a very, very, I feel, in my opinion, philosophical thinker, being able to kind of pull from, you know, some of the things and his thoughts and his ideologies as well, teaching some lessons. Um, even thinking to, you know, free market and capitalism, all these things. And yes, I do agree. Um, you know, and, it, and that, that also raises the question too. Some people are like, maybe we should change the constitution. There's this argument right now online, you know, folks are going back and forth of it not being up to date for our modern uh, world right now. And I always just kind of say, well, that kind of redirects back to why we should understand the, the principles behind things first. Um, and the, the prosperities and the freedom that go along with uh, why these documents were put in place in the first place. Now, will should we change the Constitution, you know, give or take, who knows what side you're on? I do think, yes, our world is adapting, but to some extent, I think I value more of the traditional, um, you know, landscape of things. And we've strayed away. We're so far away now from those traditional values. And yes, we talk about the question of, you know, how do we move forward from there? The reason and how we can move forward is by returning to our, our grassroots and being able to lock in on our, our history and figuring out how our government dynamic was structured, you know, back in those times and kind of seeing, yes, we it may be 2023 and not, you know, in the 1700s anymore or whatever the case may be. However, society, it's the beauty behind, yes, we have technology now. We have up-to-date, um, you know, things that are coming into play, but we need to figure out how can we use those things to our advantage to specifically, and when I say we, I mean the liberty fighters, the, 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 the freedom thinkers, the freedom fighters, um, you know, how can we use these things to our advantage? And one of the reasons why I think the left is, is doing a great job at, you know, promoting what they got going on is because they're they're using, uh, you know, this new stuff to their advantage. They're pulling in the younger audiences, you know, with the with whatever the, the headlight stories are and they know how to, the language, they know how to communicate these things. So I think uh, what we're doing wrong on our front is, you know, we're complicating things when in reality we need to start to uh, really highlight what we're here for. We need to be on one accord. Um, I feel like we're so scattered too, uh, specifically the conservative movement of, oh, I, I, I think I'm over here, but I don't really know here. We really kind of need to come to some kind of consensus of what liberty means first, right? And then move towards, um, you know, figuring out and really diluting those, those conservative principles. And that's what I think will kind of bring us forward. Shakira Jackson joining us. Okay, well, here's a historical example of what you're just talking about. You just met, you mentioned Reagan a minute ago. 
people have forgotten because they don't read like they should. They just get stuck to, oh, Reagan, he just showed up in a marble statue as this amazing person. No, he didn't fall out of bed at 65 and become, you know, win two landslide elections. Reagan messaging wise was not any different than Goldwater, but Goldwater got smoked. Remember, the time for choosing speech was yeah. him introducing Goldwater. Mm-hmm. And everybody went, well, wait a minute, who's this Vic? People couldn't stand Goldwater because he was abrasive. He was, la- you know, they didn't really believe anything marginally different from each other. Reagan spent years talking on the radio, doing radio commentary, honing that skill. He was a natural trained actor. Um, he was the head of the, a union. That'll blow some people's minds. Somebody's going to get hurt going and looking that up. That happened. He was head of the Screen Actors Guild. He was a union head. He had to deal with big personalities. He had Mm -hmm. decades of preparation that made him a great communicator. I think a lot of what's going on with what you're seeing now is we got a lot of people that are really good at social media and Twitter and fundraising speak. And they're really, really bad when it goes to talk to normies who aren't very online like you and me and other commentators are. And it falls flat because those are two different skill sets and most of them don't have both. They can get into Congress or get a governorship or whatever doing the politispeak online. But then when you got to go to a national audience, it's falling flat. I think there's a big lesson right there. Before you get to the policy stuff, if you can't communicate it or you're just talking in the buzzwords, they're not going to hear it. Right. Yep. Yep. I agree. I 100% agree. And we really need to start to shape what it truly means like to get to get our unification back. Like you said, what does define these words? You know, I, I, I have this quote in my Instagram bio right now. It says freedom is my only aspiration. Um, and it's so it's so broad and it's so like vague and it's so limitless and so wordless. And I love like, you know, I get DMs all the time and people are like, well, what do you mean freedom is, my, is your aspiration? And I'm like, you know, I, I love having the question too back and forth about what freedom means to me and what is freedom. But, you know, another conversation for another day. But yeah, I, I totally agree, Andrew. It's 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 a work in progress, and I'm I'm really really I am optimistic, and I think we're gonna get there. It's just a matter of having deep folks step forward, you know, take initiative. That's that's the answer. Take initiative. <laughs> yeah, a lot of our political problems would be solved if we just had better people held better accountable. That would solve about ninety five percent of our mess. Uh, Shakira Jack, I want to ask you about something else you wrote about, but I think you can tie it into what we were just talking about. This DOJ stuff with Google, this is a case where I see a lot of people who do a lot of mouth words about, you know, limited government and freedom of speech, and they want to be capitalists and they want to be free market people. But then when you put the big person on the block like an Amazon up on the stock and you start judging them, all of a sudden they seem to forget what those principles are like. And I see it from folks on the right and I see it from folks on the progressive left. I see it from this Obama administration who is now 0 for 4 in antitrust case. They're about to go 0 for 5, by the way. This is just Mm -hmm. another strand of what we just talked about, though. This is the legal strand. This is in the economic and business sphere. But this is the same problem of, well, how do your principles apply to something? Yeah, Google's a really big company, but you're principles still apply, whether it's Google or the mom and pop, you know, Paco stand down on the end of the street. That should be the same principles, right? You wrote about it. How did it hit you the way DOJ's doing this? But I was also kind of alarmed with how some of the folks on the right reacted to some of this. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, just to clarify for those who may not have read the article yet, you know, the the stance that I take is specifically, you know, the Department of Justice kind of presents, you know, a narrative where Google is the gatekeeper um, accused of kind of choking competition by pre-emptying potential, you know, rivals through um, exclusivity uh, deals. So, you know, these contracts kind of ensure Google's search dominance on, you know, various devices and platforms. So potentially lead to an online 
experience curated more by corporate deals than by consumer preference. So I think kind of unpacking, you know, your question, when I think about more of the, the philosophical aspect of things, I think about like the potential outcome. So, you know, the, the consequences of this trial, um, you know, could, could kind of go two ways. And, you know, we've kind of seen the process and updates since I have produced this article, but, you know, either we're ushering in a new era where, you know, small tech innovators can thrive or we're stepping into to kind of a market cluttered, um, you know, with choices that lack the uh, the really the the con the con the connoisseurs really uh, where where we're used. So, an innovation is not kind of solely the domain of small entities. Sometimes it takes a giant to really push the envelope. So, you know, we must kind of weigh these these outcomes carefully. And I just think about personally, kind of the broader impact on businesses. You know, this this trial is uh, a a breaking point rather for the tech industry and beyond it's you know about how we kind of regulate businesses in an age where data and digital presence are as critical as the physical storefronts of the past so you know a ruling against google could kind of rewrite the the rule book on business strategies possibly curbing the benefits of scale that can drive down costs and drive up innovation so i i don't know i i it was interesting i definitely thought it was interesting to to kind of seeing how um, some folks on the left were responding to this, but we find ourselves at crossroads where our very definition of fairness in the market is being challenged. So, you know, kind of as we ponder the DOJ's actions against Google, I feel like let's not kind of lose sight of the ultimate kind of um, meter of our anted or our laws per se, um, you know, the consumer's welfare. So kind of whatever the outcome, it, it kind of must enhance, not hinder more so the, the consumer experience and continue to kind of foster an environment where innovation can thrive. Yeah, Shakira Jackson joining us. Let's kind of round this off kind of where we started, but in a practical way, because the DOJ is this really big thing that most people can do a blessed thing about. I mean, I know we vote for the president who appoints it, but let's be honest, that's a machination of government that's out of our control for the most part. You you talk about, you know, you kind of have a heart for the low level, the community organizing, the interpersonal level, whether it's something like just basic freedom principles whether it's something like, you know, free market principles or a business or whatever. Talk about some practical stuff, because I don't think people there's another buzzword, community organizing. You know, we've heard that one since the Obama days, especially. We don't talk about what it actually means, though. But if you got social media, you got a Facebook account, you got a Twitter account, you can organize people just by giving your opinion. more. Give folks a couple of practical things of like, hey, even just from your phone, just your social media, your conversations when you're in public at your, you know, school groups or church groups or beauty parlors, barbershops, whatever, when you're in public or on social media, you are advocating something. Give folks a couple practical things that they can actually do that actually might make a difference on some of these topics. Because we don't talk about that enough. Yeah, I 100% agree. Um, and I think... If Hey, get into the journalism life. You know, op-eds are, are definitely where it's at. I definitely, I find myself speaking louder now more than ever versus when, even when I do my podcast, I was like looking at too how much I've grown in the, the writing sphere as a whole with expanding my knowledge. And it really helps to, to do those things. But also thinking about the shift from consumer welfare to competition. We really have to relate a lot of this stuff back to everyday use things. So like, you know, I mentioned the, the business example earlier, but also when we think about kind of the intersection of technology, market power, and consumer rights, every click, search, and app downloaded we make is touched by this case. So kind of questioning how digital choices are presented to us what freedoms we should have in this vast online ecosystem. Those are all of the things that we need to be thinking about. We need to be bringing to the forefront. I think it's going to be vital with understanding and really getting the message out there of what these small prints and, you know, all of these things, what they mean. And so being able to kind of measure the, the harm by consumer prices and service quality to focusing on kind of the structure of, you know, competition, all that stuff is, is pivotal. So I think our end goal at overall should just be, you know, really figuring out a way, whether that's making a video, writing an op-ed, talking to your friends about it, uh, spreading awareness of how these things are important, but also relating it, like I said, back to everyday life, everyday uses. 
Yeah, I I appreciate that. And I think especially us to do the talking heading stuff and the podcast and whatever, sometimes we got to remind ourselves like, okay, wait a minute, we got to do some low level stuff of like, oh, no, you're just normal everyday speech has effects on this stuff. It's not just, you know, when you get an op ed and a name publication, people talking about this is important, too. And we need to remember that level. Shakira Jackson, love it. We're going to link to both of the pieces we talked about, plus her social media and everything else, so you can follow and keep up with her. Let folks know how they can do that until we get you back, because we're definitely going to have you back. Let them know where they can keep up with it until we get you back on the program, my friend. Absolutely. So uh, my social media tag is universal. You can find me on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at Shakira Jackson, spelled S-H-A-K-I-R-A-J-A-C-K-S-0-N. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Andrew, for having me on. I can't wait till next time. Yeah, we'll definitely bring you back, Shakira Jackson. Appreciate your time, ma'am. Thank you. And that'll do it for this edition of Herd Tell. Wherever you are, you can join us through whatever medium you're listening to. If you're on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, we're even on some podcasts over in India. You folks in India, we see you on the stats. Welcome. Thank you. Drop us a line. We're all over the world and on any podcasting platform you can think of. Make sure you're subscribing and or following or whatever that platform calls it. That helps us keep track of you, lets us know how you're listening to the program, make sure we can tailor it to get it to you. Heard Tell Show or my name, Andrew Donaldson, on any of those platforms, it'll come right up. But we have a one-stop shop for everything that we do, herdtell.substack.com. It's completely free. Subscribe. You get everything right into your inbox. Anytime I write, do a media appearance, do a new episode of Heard Tell. We also have Heard Tell specials. We're going to get back to doing the twice on Sunday recap shows. We also have a huge archive, so we're going to have some specials, some best of things like that, and also some of the food writing from Yonder and Home. We're starting to re-up that as well. We got over 600 episodes of Heard Tell in the archive to start porting over. We're going to be working on that. So sign up for the Substack, please. Get you right in your inbox. Never miss anything. Doesn't cost you anything more than a click herdtell.substack.com we sure appreciate it and follow us on social media herdtell show on the twitter four for the fires my personal twitter handle no we're not going to call it x but if you could share us and let folks know that our programs we're checking out we sure would appreciate it so wherever you are across the street or around the world we hope you're well we hope you are well fed we'll talk to you real soon for the next herdtell All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Herd Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress 
on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.